Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Patricia Strzok and Kathleen Sullivan, the authors of The Politics of Trash, How Governments Use Corruption to Clean Cities, 1890 to 1929. This book was published in 2022 by Cornell University Press. And let me tell you, this is a this is a barn burner. Um, one doesn't necessarily think about trash, as the authors often tell us throughout the book, but wow, there's a lot to think about. Um, and and it's not only that we think about it 100 years ago, but interestingly enough, it's somewhat the same today, um, even though we have our nice recycling people who come and get our recyclables. Uh, but I'm going to let Patricia and Kathleen tell us all about that. I'd like to welcome um, Patricia Strzok and Kathleen Sullivan to the New Books podcast and ask them to tell us a little bit about themselves and how they came to this particular project about the politics of trash. Thank you, Lily. I'm Kathleen Sullivan. I'm an associate professor of political science at Ohio University. And I'm Patricia Strzok. I'm a professor of political science and public administration at the University of Albany. And Kathleen and I met actually when we were in graduate school. We were both doing our dissertations on family. And you may ask yourself, how do we get from family to garbage? Um, and that's actually the that's actually the story of how we ended up here. Is that Kathleen and I study family as a is a means to achieve other ends, uh, governmental ends, and other public policy ends. And we were interested. We kept getting pushback that this was this was not something that governments used. And so we wanted to study an issue. We wanted to study something where we could look at the resources that governments use. So we really focused on family as a resource, and then we threw it open and say, okay, what do governments use to solve pressing public policy problems? And then Kathleen, how do we get to garbage from there? And then we wanted to get really elemental. We wanted to think of the basic building blocks of how governments get things done. So we ended up going local. We decided to study something in local politics. And uh, we were down to garbage, perhaps sewerage and water provision. And we chose garbage. And what's really interesting about garbage is in the 19th century, cities across the United States were facing the same problem. People were moving to cities. They were living close together. The traditional ways of getting rid of garbage, which is to burn it, to bury it, or to uh, feed it to pigs, just don't work anymore when you have so many people living so close together. And so, you know, at the very same time across the country, all of these different governments are dealing with the same problem but they don't address it the same way. And so then that's what we're thinking about, like how do they address it and why did they choose what they did? And, and so you, you sort of start off as you note at, you know, sort of in the late 18, 
1880s, 1890s, as we have, you know, sort of demographic changes going on around the United States. We have um, waves of immigrants coming in and the the populations of cities are growing um, and people are doing fun things with their garbage, right? Um, And it's becoming problematic is what you also talk about is that, you know, we see the rise of diseases because people are living in close proximity and they're not being sanitary with their garbage. Um, So can you talk a little bit about how cities mostly, much more so than rural areas, sort of found themselves trying to sort this problem out? Right. So cities could actually tolerate a lot of kind of like self-help. So you might have a farmer who drove through town who would pick up people's trash and whisk it out of the city. People might bury it in their backyard. And there was some level of toleration for that until the populations grew too concentrated. And then that's when these kind of individual practices just became unsanitary. And there were sanitarians who had been working for decades to try to get cities to come up with a system of collection and disposal, and they could never really pull it off. But by the time you see these um, rates of high concentration and very visible problems, that's when the sanitarians' ideas could actually become public policy. And the sanitarians, which is an interesting term, um, and and you talk about um, the fact that the the sanitarians um, were mostly rejected for long stretches of time that they they sort of said okay we can help you with this but that they there's you know a similar kind of some of this same rejection of expertise that we saw recently with like the the covid pandemic was going on here um can you talk about like why that was a problem so you can imagine if you have a pub- public problem, if you have a pressing problem, and if people are dying of diseases, if commerce can't pass, literally can't pass through the streets because they're clogged with trash, if it smells terrible, especially in the summer, that this would be something that you'd want to jump on. And if you have these experts who have been studying this, as Kathleen said, for decades, who have all of these ideas, it seems to be an easy connection, but that's exactly what didn't happen in most cities. And these experts and business people who wanted clean streets and women's civics organizations who wanted to participate were kind of pushed out and told that they weren't welcome in these decisions because the decisions were being made by many times corrupt governments. And the last thing these, you know, corrupt governments wanted was a bunch of these do-gooder sanitarians to come in and tell them how to run their cities um, because that really wasn't their goal is to run the most efficient, most healthy city possible. And, and so, a lot of this is also drilling down into like the the local governments, the the city governments um, in you, and you have a number of cases in St. Louis and Charleston and San Francisco and so forth. Um, and it is really this kind of it's repeated over and over and over um, that all of these cities across you know different sectors of the United States are all facing the same problem and sort of trying to sort their way through it, which is sort of the thesis of the book is, you know, 
what do we see if we look at this from um, an American political development perspective methodologically um, and you have these case studies. So if we talk about initially this this kind of local politics process and you you've already mentioned some of the issues with corruption um, but there were a number of different tentacles in the cities that were kind of framing this can you go into that sort of broader thesis and and also how you came to the case studies themselves so we started with a book uh, that was written in about 1900 by Charles Chapin, Municipal Sanitation in the United States. And it was a comprehensive account of uh, not just garbage, but sanitation in the U.S. But what we were able to get from that was we we were able to, um, and this is the work that Patty did, we were able to uh, document what kind of collection different cities chose. So we put that on a big spreadsheet, and I guess Patty have you share what the conclusions were. So there were three different ways that Chapin said cities were collecting trash. They collected it by public collection. So you had a public collector go out and get it. They contracted with a business or they had no collection. And so originally we looked at these three and then we found there's regional patterns. So the Northeast did contract collection. The West had no collection and the South had city collection, which is not what we were expecting to find. So we originally chose three cases that illustrated each of these kind of trends. And that's how we selected our first three cities, which were San Francisco, Pittsburgh, and New Orleans, to go and see, well, what is driving their decisions? And we actually came to those cities with some presumptions. So we presumed that if a city had city collection, if the city was collecting garbage itself, that it had the capacity to do so. And we thought, boy, New Orleans must have been really developed in terms of its administration. And we assumed that if a city contracted out, that they lacked the capacity and so that they were scrambling about for resources. And then our presumptions were really upended when we actually got to the archives of these cities. So this was the surprising part of the research. And oftentimes I have authors tell me what's the most surprising part of their research when they sort of dive into it. And this sounds to me like it was the most surprising part of your research. Um, So it was, it sounds like a lot of it was counterintuitive. Yes, I think think what happened is when we got to the archives, so we we started with these data, we chose our cases based on these data, and then we got to the archives and we said, these data are meaningless. They're absolutely meaningless. And in in San Francisco, what we found, no, no collection. We were assuming it was going to be a giant mess, and it wasn't. No collection just meant the city had no collection, but residents were working with with their own scavengers to collect the trash. So trash was being picked up. It just wasn't done through the city. And when we were in New Orleans, you know, we had this presumption that if government is is collecting trash, it was developed. And then we go through and we're looking through these pages of these um, ledgers and it's all written in, in cursive and we're, you know, staring at these names. And then we realize there's hatch marks going down the side, ditto marks. And because the first first word in that line was Mrs. And these were women's names on the ledgers. And at that point, we really said, these aggregate data make no sense. And what we did was kind of threw that out and then went with, okay, we're going to look at more cases, more archives to see what is going on here. What, what does this actually mean? 
so Chapin's, uh, you know, magnum opus on the sanitation processes in the United States was actually not quite accurate. Oh, it was accurate. It was accurate. It told us what the forms of collection were, but I think we came to it assuming what it meant to have municipal collection or what it means to contract out. So it was accurate, but the assumptions, the political assumptions were inaccurate. Um, Exactly. And so you had originally San Francisco as someplace that didn't have formal collection. Um, You had New Orleans as a city that had collection. And then you had Pittsburgh as one that had contracted with private industry or privateers to sort of do the collection. And then you said, this is not enough case studies because our assumptions are sort of a little bit backwards. So how did you get to the rest? You had St. Louis in there and Charleston. So what were all of the cities that you looked at and, and why did you choose those? We wanted to see more cities in the South. We just wanted to see if we were looking at exceptionalism or something. And so we we really did Charleston as another case study, um, which was very different from New Orleans. Uh, Charleston had been collecting garbage since the early 19th century. And then what we found there was it relied on enslaved labor. Uh, that's what gave it the capacity. So that was another real surprise to us. We did add... Um, Birmingham and Louisville really as kind of secondary cities to just get a sense of other Southern cities, just to, just to make sure that New Orleans just wasn't too distinctive. So, and then we added St. Louis because St. Louis was being touted for its excellent garbage collection as the world's fair uh, was arising. But again, uh, once we got there, we realized that was rather a mess as well. So Um, And so you, as political scientists, went to a lot of archives and read (laughs) a lot of information about garbage collection. Um, So the methodology that you used is one that is essentially associated with the School of American Political Development um, and more qualitative, not necessarily as quantitative. Um, but certainly comprehensive in terms of what you're seeing in these places in terms of the different zones, you know, the three buckets as you sort of designed. Um, And so St. Louis didn't have excellent garbage collection. St. Louis is such a charming case study because they had such aspirations to greatness. They wanted to be the um, capital of the United States, they had they had all of the, all of these things that they wanted, and um, this is a great story of, of corruption in the sense that you know there was a you know the the city was very corrupt, and there was a middleman that operated between these um, you know kind of power brokers that were businessmen that were trying to buy contracts for things like lighting and streetcars and the city officials. And the main one of these kind of power brokers had the garbage collection contract in his hands. And so in a bid to rid the city of corruption, they got rid of this guy. And then after he left, everyone realized they didn't know how to <laughs> dispose of trash. And so they, they um, you know, they 
they got rid of their capacity when they got rid of the corruption. And so that was really interesting to see that they went back to dumping in the Mississippi River just as they had before they started collection, kind of this, you know, big facility that they had to begin with. So St. Louis was a very interesting case. And then, you know, by the time we got to St. Louis, we were really able to parse out, like every time we started in a city, we would say, wow, I can't believe this. And then by the time we got to St. Louis, we would say, here's what's unique to St. Louis, but here's the same kinds of things that we've seen across all of our cases. And so we were really able by that point to look at this very interesting story and say, well, here's what's similar to all the other cases and here's what's different. And and that is certainly how you sort of set up the the chapters in the book is you, you know, you sort of talk about the, the capacity issue of actually, you know, having a process for getting rid of garbage from an individual household or or where people are living um, by the city or by an enterprise that is somehow connected usually to the city, except in San Francisco's case. Um, but then you also delineate, as you just said, you know, what role does corruption play in all of this? Um, because we also have, you know, this is the era of Tammany Hall and, you know, who's Who's got what and who's giving it to whom? Um, so can you talk a bit about like what you saw with regard to local government and the role of corruption and how sometimes it's effective, as you say, in St. Louis and then other times not so much? I think I think one of the things that we really found with um, corruption is that is that corruption looks different in different cities. And so we're so quick to point out political machines, which was actually the case in Pittsburgh. They did have a political machine. But corruption functions in different ways, and its relationship to government is different in different cities. So we talked about St. Louis, where you have these kind of um, businessmen who are bribing the city officials through this conduit. So the corruption is you know, basically outside the government and it's being, you know, it's being funneled in. And then in a, in a case like Pittsburgh, which is a machine, it's totally integrated into government, right? So they're not breaking the law because they're making laws that make whatever they do legal, right? So these different relationships were things that we came to really understand and appreciate about corruption, not that we approve of it, that we appreciated about it, is that understanding how corruption functions Understanding its relationship to government helped us to understand the capacity that governments had, right? So in St. Louis, when the city breaks up with this collector, it has no capacity left. In Pittsburgh, you know, the um, because the machine is a machine of businessmen, they, they do all of these great public works. They are ripping up the streets to put in sewers. They are collecting trash, but they're doing this because they own the paving company. So they get to put the streets back and make a ton of money. So they're doing these great progressive things, but not for great progressive reasons. And so they have all of these resources that they have. They have all of this know-how and they're not fantastic trash collectors, but they do a pretty good job um, because they have this capacity. So I think Kathleen and I could really appreciate that corruption is a resource that governments use. Again, we're not saying we approve of corruption. We're saying that it was a resource that governments used to develop these programs that we all take for granted now um, that we associate with progressive governments. 
Another thing we really appreciated about Pittsburgh is that they were able to build and run a reduction plant. So another party that we study here are engineers. So engineers were devising extraordinary contraptions to collect garbage and to dispose of it. And one uh, one technology was called reduction. It's, it's sort of like an incinerator, but it's a place where you would burn and then press garbage and extract a grease from it. And the idea was that you could sell the grease as a byproduct. And this was the sort of thing that required a huge investment. Um, and then they were difficult to operate. And actually, they didn't really work, but at least it, it provided an incentive to the political machine in Pittsburgh to invest in it because they thought they could make more money. And it is interesting to see the cities in which reduction did not work, right? So when we look at um, New Orleans tried to do a reduction plant, but it just failed because of the politics. So oddly enough, Pittsburgh, uh, Pittsburgh was a city that kind of pulled it off and it made us really admire the resources that 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 corrupt machine could provide. And one of the things you mentioned earlier um, in our discussion was that you you do have this question, like as you've noted in the Pittsburgh case study, that the the business community is is embedded and meshed in, you know, the whole municipal services around garbage and disposal collection, sanitation sanitary, sanitizing, et cetera. Um, But you also talk about the fact that gender, interestingly, comes into trash collection. Um, And you have a whole focus on sort of the women's roles, particularly white women, um, in, in this. Can you explain how we have gender intersecting with trash collection? So women's civic organizations were very invested in getting garbage collection programs up and running in the 1890s. In fact, in Pittsburgh, the women's civic organization there said that they were responsible for the ordinance. Don't know if that's true or not, but they felt very connected to it. But what they what these different organizations found is that once the city took over collection in whatever way, they pushed those women aside. As Patty already mentioned, they did not want these very invested do-gooders uh, getting too close to politics. So what we found was that a lot of women's civic organizations would work on the sidelines. So they, they couldn't get involved in the garbage collection itself, but they might raise money to uh, put trash cans on street corners or have a cleanup day. So they occupied themselves with that for a few decades, actually, I'd say into the 1910s. And then in the about 1910s, 1920s, we start to see things change. You want to take that, Patty? Yes. Uh, so one, one thing that changed is that these garbage programs were failing. And so you can pass an ordinance, you can buy the carts, you can do all of these things in a city But if residents don't put their trash out in the right kind of bin at the right time, separated in the right way, then it's going to fail. So compliance was a huge issue for all of these cities. So you can imagine if you're used to throwing something in the privy, if you're used to tossing it out your window and then the government says, no, you have to go out and buy this bin. And then on this date, you have to put it in this location. It didn't go over very well. Not so different from COVID. <laughs> right? like it's, 
it didn't go over well at all. And so what what governments did is they had pushed these women out and then they realized, well, gosh, who's running these households? It's women. So we need to bring them back in so that they can educate other women, that they can serve as these role models and they can use, you know, you know, what we would call like soft power instead of hard power. So in New Orleans, you know, people wouldn't do what they were supposed to do. So the government was like, okay, well, we're going to fine you or throw you in jail. And that went over like a lead balloon, right? The residents revolted, the administration was thrown out of power. And so cities got a lot smarter and they would say, well, why don't you go and show what a great, what a great uh, person that you are, what a great role model you are by teaching other women how to just, how to dispose of their trash. And so this really became, because garbage is something that you have to do in your own home, separating it is something you have to put out. Is This really became something that became women's job to educate other women and to kind of use this soft power. Like, do you really want to be the household that doesn't do this, right? Or do you want to be one of us who does? And so that's really the way that gender came in and was used, again, as a resource to help governments achieve their objectives. And that's what brought us to the archives of Good Housekeeping magazine, where we actually really, really got into it and looked for a lot of garbage can advertisements to look at the way all this technology uh, was being pitched to women and how they could make use of this technology to take pride in their own homes. So Republican motherhood makes an appearance here in the the story of of cash. Yes. And fascinating because it's everywhere all the time in the United States, but here we are and it's, it's also there. Um, So the next part of the story that you talk about is the fact that the hierarchy of inequality, um, particularly with regard to newly arrived immigrants and also African-Americans intersect into this story as well. Um, And you've made reference to the fact that a lot of the success in places like New Orleans was due to enslaved labor being the the method of trash removal and so forth. Um, So how and where does the racial hierarchy that we know unfortunately so well in the United States um, come into the entire story? It didn't come in as clearly as we thought it would, right? Based on what we knew about inequality in garbage collection, um, we we thought we would see it. And because a lot of our archival material were the public documents of municipal governments, what we found was that uh, racial differences were just really not discussed much at all. And so there was rather a silence about race and a silence about which neighborhoods were being served better than others and that sort of thing. And so we took that into account. And then so that when we did see race mentioned in the documents, we became alert to it because what it meant was that that was unusual. And it ended up being that if a person's race were mentioned, that was a sign to us that someone was being blamed. And what we eventually discovered was that that was a form of deflection because there were cities that were pretty deficient or regimes that were pretty deficient in their garbage collection. And when complaints started to mount, 
they would turn to a neighborhood, right? Maybe a, a immigrant neighborhood, or, or we would start to notice the times in which these populations were mentioned. And, and so we, we have these populations mentioned, but you found more evidence also that this is a kind of blame deflection you know, sort of behavior, which is not new to elected officials. Um, I wrote a whole dis- dissertation on blame avoidance behavior with regard to military base closings. So again, this is what politicians do on a regular basis. Um, but this had also the capacity to sort of have um, contribute to stereotypes um, and general attitudes towards not only immigrant groups, but also people of color. Um, so can you talk about a little bit more of how that really became more entrenched as a sort of blame deflection methodology? Well, if we go back to those white women um, civic groups, one thing that occurred is that as they came in um, to, you know, take pride in their own behavior, they were also enlisted in some cities to teach other people how to do things. And so it became there. We started to see that this is where we started to see different statuses being reconstructed um, based on if you had a tidy curb or not. And that, of course, was all resource dependent. And so that tended to reproduce um, social and economic inequalities as some neighborhoods, which may have been better served, looked nicer, right? It then became individualized. It became that, oh, well, the woman in the house takes pride in her garbage. And the problem with that neighborhood on the hill is that they don't take pride. And so you took these really structural issues, be- looked like it was just people's personal proclivities. And the same thing with the collectors. So one thing that we know, it was the same pattern we saw over and over again, that a new mayoral administration would come in and they would say, boy, this city's a mess. We're going to clean it up. And then, as Kathleen mentioned, they wouldn't <laughs> effectively clean it up. And the complaints would start rolling in and appearing in the newspapers. And then suddenly it's the collectors who are, you know, not doing their jobs adequately or, you know, not... Um, picking up the trash they're supposed to pick up. So it it became very much a sign that whenever those people were being blamed, that we knew something was going on. And then the next mayoral administration would come in and they say, city's a mess. And then they would follow the exact same pattern. And then the documents would say the city's never been cleaner, but all of these complaints would be published in the newspapers. And so we would see the same pattern and then they would point to the same groups as being responsible for the city's messy state. And they never took responsibility. And and did this happen in all of the cities that you used as case studies? I think so. I don't I don't know that we ever went to Den and marked it, but we saw that same pattern reoccurring over and over again when we're reading the health documents that they would always say the exact same thing. City's been a mess, now the city's clean. And then they would say, Here's the people who are causing all the problems. And and part of this also gets to the, you know, sort of basic understanding of politics um, at the local or, you know, even national level of, you know, their scarce resources and, and people want 
something done. Um, and then who is, who's getting the contract, who is doing the work and are the resources sufficient to, you know, sort of do that. Um, did you find differences in terms of like cities were willing to put in a little bit more money or less money? Um, they were more, as you said, you know, St. Louis was, was, was going to be the, the, sort of apex of, of cleanliness next to godliness. Um, so what differences did you see in terms of the, this sort of basic function of politics? Charleston was really interesting because it had the earliest garbage collection that we found. But then we, what we found was in the 1890s, as cities got really excited and cities like Pittsburgh started to invest in new things, Charleston just continued to move steadily along. And we found they were actually really lax in terms of the innovation, or at least the efforts to innovate in the 1890s. It was an incredibly conservative city, right, in terms of just not budging or getting excited um, policy-wise in this time period. And there was huge variation in terms of the resources that cities had. So New Orleans and Charleston both were saddled by enormous debt after the Civil War. And Pittsburgh and um, St. Louis had enormous resources that they had access to, right? So Pittsburgh was the smoky city, and they they said that as a point of pride, right? We're the smoky city, which means we have all of these industrial plants here aren't, aren't we very advanced? And so even if, you know, government wasn't going to throw a lot of resources into it, which they were because they were taking it out the backside, right? They were contracting with the the brother of the, of the boss of the machine. So they were putting the money in and then they were taking it out on the other side. But even if they weren't willing to do that, there were these in, industrialists with a lot of money who were willing to put resources in. And in cities like in the southern cities they just you know they talked about how much money they were servicing on the debt and one of the things that kept getting cut to service the debt was things like um was things like garbage and then in san francisco because they didn't have any public collection that was really kind of a non-starter in terms of the resources they were putting into it well the funny thing about san francisco is that the city really did want to get in on garbage collection in about 1920 and at that point the scavengers managed to organize and really resist the city and then they were like the city tried a few times and then the scavengers enlisted the housewives again and they they issued these flyers and they said listen you know who your collector is you want to stick with us and so the city tried a number of times to right rest garbage collection from the scavengers and could not do it so that was a pretty fascinating story of politics but it was really about organizing and solidarity outside of politics and resisting political power and one of the things that you note throughout the book is while we live in you know the age of computers and cell phones and flying cars and stuff like that um and jetpacks uh that Garbage collection has remained remarkably the same, um, even though, you know, we all have our recycling bins and our composting bins. And so w w what's going on there? It's remarkable how much the technology has not changed. Sure, we're not collecting with horses and wagons anymore. We have, you know, these fancy garbage trucks that come. 
But the basic way we collect trash and the basic ways we dispose of trash are the same as they were in the 19th century. So for most people, that means you separate your trash in a particular way in your kitchen, that you take the trash out in a particular day and you leave it on the curb in a specified bin, right? That you have to do in that particular way. So in that way, a lot of the trash uh, infrastructure is exactly the same. And we're still dumping it in landfills. We're burning it. Um, so we haven't changed all that much. And even a turn to recycling is almost a return to the scavenging, right? So scavengers used to come by and they would collect any materials that could be sold and reused like cloth for example and so we're kind of just returning to that same model where we separate more out we reuse more but we're doing it in a slightly different way but it is the same basic infrastructure that we have had and the interesting thing about san francisco and kathleen loves san francisco um is that it's the same company it's the exact same company that was there when we were studying it kathleen do you want to talk more about that oh yeah yeah, I, I I don't have much more to say about that one, but yeah, it's it's the fact that um that people love their haulers out there. Um, they have a good relationship, and yeah, and I think the other thing that is the same is that this started out as a public health measure, right? And some cities still call their department the Department of Sanitation, and the idea of sanitation is that you want to get this waste away from the concentrated city centers. You just want to whisk it away, and uh, that is the model that, for the most part, is still being used in American municipalities, despite all our you know um, recycling and composting. But few cities are doing again what San Francisco is doing, which is moving towards zero waste. That would be a different sort of mindset about what garbage is and what we should be doing with it and where it comes from in the first place. So there are more kinds of comprehensive understandings about even how to think about garbage. It's not just about taking it from your kitchen and putting it to the curb. But that, I would say, is a few pilot programs throughout the country. For the most part, American garbage collection continues to be a matter of sanitation. And the zero waste, which is essentially a shift in thinking about... Yes garbage. <laughs> um, can you explain to the listeners a little bit about how that is a shift in thinking as opposed to like just a shift in behavior? Right. And I would say for this, I rely on um, uh, another author, Lilybaum Pollins, has been writing about this. And what she's pointing out is that you would need to think about garbage again, not as an individual householder's responsibility, but to pull back to the businesses and corporations that are selling these products in the first place, and that you would need to go there to rethink how these products are even produced in the first place. So it really relieves, you know what I mean, it, it pulls back and stops thinking of it as if households are the ones who are generating this waste, right? It's coming from somewhere else. So it would be a shift in consumerism and production. And and I know my own experience, um, having been uh, in Europe at some point, when you can stand in the checkout line and basically disrobe your um, things that you're purchasing from plastic and so forth and leave it at the grocery store, um, which then means that the grocery store is going to be responsible for getting rid of it but that may move it back further to whoever's producing 
the item not to package it in that way um, because it's an expense then that has to be borne by some other entity. Um, and, you know, anybody who's ever shopped at Costco knows that it's really hard to get into some of those packaging things. <laughs> uh, so what are you two working on now? Are you working on something together? Is this the end of trash? Uh, what's next? We can't stop talking about trash. Patty and I are still publishing things. Uh, we just revisited uh, Columbus, which was sort of a city we had looked at and not included in the book. So we followed up and have compared Columbus and Pittsburgh, and we learned more about our political machine in Pittsburgh in doing so. Um, we're thinking about um, APD and sanitarians, but we're also doing our own projects. So my individual project is that I'm working on sailors' boarding houses in the 19th century, and I'm looking at the uh, protection of seamen uh, who stayed at these like exploitative boarding houses. Interesting. It is. And Patricia? And then um, I'm working on a project on the opioid epidemic in New York State. So focusing still on local governments and how they solve problems. That This just happens to be much more contemporary. But, you know, I don't know. It's been since graduate school. I can't let go of this kind of resource approach to thinking about politics and this idea that things that are very mundane are also very political. And so that's the, I think the lesson that Kathleen and I really took away from this book that, you know, pe people would, people would snicker at us and say like, Oh, you're soaking on garbage. You're the garbage girls. And, you know, at first we thought that was funny too. And then we thought, wow, doesn't that really say something about how much things have changed? This brought down the mayoral administration in new Orleans and now we don't even think about it as political. We think about it as Kathleen was saying something very personal. I take my garbage out. I'm a good citizen. Yes, exactly. And, you know, again, Republican motherhood there um, for the win, for not the win. I don't know. Um, <laughs> so when when the next book comes out, either on trash or on opioids or on semen, um, I hope that either one of you or both of you will come back on the New Books podcast and talk to me about whatever it is that. you've published. That. <laughs> thank you. Um, so I would, I would love to thank uh, Patricia Strzok and Kathleen Sullivan for joining me today to talk about the politics of trash, how governments use corruption to clean cities, 1890 to 1929, published by Cornell University Press. I assume this is purchasable at Cornell University Press. Do you have a brick and mortar store with an online presence to which you would like to give a shout out? We do not. That's fine. We'll just send people to the Cornell University Press to pick up their copy of The Politics of Trash. Thank you, ladies, for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you, Lily.